This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. So Damian Warner becomes the only decathlete or heptathlete to have won at Gotsis in Austria six times, sets a Canadian record and a world decathlon record in the long jump, and comes within five points of what Damien himself referred to as the magical 9,000-point mark. That's how great his weekend was. And Damien is in the midst of traveling back, but we've got to talk about this story a little bit more because it was that remarkable a weekend. Jeff Fisher joins us from Fisher and Associates. They represent Damien Warner. Jeff, how are things? Oh, good. <laughs> Needless to say, it was a, a great weekend. It was a uh, early um, early start to the day because we were online watching at uh, 4 a.m. our time. But uh, it was exciting <laughs> to say the least. So it was amazing. If if we were walking by your house at 4 a.m., there would been a there would have been a light on somewhere in it, shining brightly. Uh, I would tell you yesterday at 4. 11 a.m. You would hear me screaming too when he uh, he set or yeah he set the actual hurdle world record um, yesterday uh, with his his run. So he set three world records uh, for the decathlon: the long jump, the hurdles, and the best uh, first day score, um, which is amazing. Long jump, hurdles, and best first day score. Jeff, you've known Damien a long time. What is it that has kind of kicked off this year like this? Um, I think part of it, where there's a few things, when you hear him and, and his coaches say he had a lingering ankle issue that was um, there for a while, and it just gave him a chance to heal. Um, initially forcing him inside, nobody was happy with that. He couldn't trade, train at Western, um, you know, have the, the rink converted. Um, if you see the video I posted of him running, you know, 32 meters and then slamming into a mat to stop him because he uh, can't train his body to decelerate, um, the, the, the long jump runway was shorter than what he would normally do. So what Gar in particular did is they, they emphasized, um, the biomechanics and, and his takeoff on long jump and his, um, other aspects of, of the events that they were forced to do. And it just, about halfway through the winter, it was just this calm came over them because it's like, okay, it is what it is. That's what we're doing. Um, but that's the reality of what it was. And, and uh, frustrating, uh, you know, when he was so close on the, on the um, 1500. And um, you're right. It's like, that is their worst nightmare as a decathlete to, um, have to come down to doing really well in that for some sort of record. Um, and so it was, you know, so bloody close. But at the same time, and I heard him say in the interview after, he didn't. He knew he had improved. He didn't know it was that well. And this is just, this is an eye-opener for everybody. It's it's there. And um, as I've said to a few people who may not know, is part of training in the arena was he had to throw the javelin and the discus into a, tarp hanging from the ceiling and i joked about it's like virtual golf without any you know metrics to say that was a you know 70 meter javelin throw we just didn't know so they just worked on the 
um, the release and, and you know, the, that part of the event. So once he gets outside, in which he's been for a bit, and is able to train in those two disciplines, and, and he's also making improvements in pole vault, um, he, again, he's now rebuilt the way he's doing pole vault, but we couldn't get his new poles, which he had to move to a longer pole here in time. And I think he practiced once with them before going over there. So despite all that, he still was within five points of 9,000 and three records. So it's just an incredible performance. Jeff Fisher joining us from Fisher and Associates as we talk about the weekend that Damian Warner had. So mostly training indoors how difficult was it to even find a place for him to train to to say hey you know what we need to do hang a tarp from the ceiling and we're going to throw javelins at it you okay with that or find a mat to to break your your stride basically it it was um connection through guard it's for somebody with the city of london and god bless them because they say look we think we can do this here and then Vito Fugia from Southside Group, who's been a huge supporter of Damien's, he brought in you know, a truckload of sand, and we brought in the runway that he needed for running, built a uh, suspended, like a, a, a wooden box runway for long jump. Um, when you saw what he was doing, and they came down from the national news to film him, and they just looked in total disbelief that this is where the best athlete in the world, and I will call him that, and I think many will, um, is, is training and like the high jump, he had to run around a metal plate on the, the, the rink floor. Like it was just, it was crazy what he was doing, but it's worked and, and, and it's a great story to see uh, what's been done. So yeah, it was built and we were able to do it limited on everything. Um, I know he didn't really get a chance to run outside because he wasn't allowed anywhere to run outside. And so knowing it came down to 1500, which really he hadn't trained much for, nor do they like training for, um, that was going to be a tough one, but he almost did it. It just shows his talent. Boy, you think back to other forms of training that have changed over the years and and what some of the trainers have done in order to enhance what their athletes do. Given the way that Damien performed this weekend, 8,995 points, a first-day record, uh, two other records that were broken – you're going to have, and Gar will have people calling saying, that tarp that you have, or that runway that you have, or, or where do we put the metal plate down for the high jump so you have to think twice about running by it? You're going to have people saying, we need to train like this guy trains. Well, that's what we were joking about, that we may get a whole bunch of international athletes coming to London, Ontario, to train at Farkasen next year, if that's, if that's what they see. You know, normally it is Santa Barbara or the huge facility in Florida with, you know, that multi-million dollar uh, facilities and that's where he would normally be and, and he couldn't even travel down there so literally like it doesn't get any better as a canadian story than the greatest athlete in the world right now training at a hockey rink in london ontario that's it and i guess at the same time you didn't necessarily know what you were training for the olympics yes they're they're planned but there is still no complete green light i mean was there a green light for any event at any point you know this uh we knew this event which is a regular one in austria and austria um we got that message uh, a couple months ago so given how it was opening up over there even so flying over they had to change the road over they almost didn't make it uh, because it, it was not allowed the way um, it was originally organized. 
Um, we are still hearing favorable things uh, about Tokyo because um, one reality is the billions of dollars of TV revenue. So no, they may not have fans in the stands, but they want the events to be able to broadcast around the world. And frankly, I think, um, you know, everyone's talked about the mental health component and we've seen it um, just with giving some, you know, hockey playoffs back on the, the ability for people to escape and watch and enjoy something like that. And the unifying element of the Olympics as a country, I think it's really necessary um, and hope that, um, uh, it, it will be a go. I, I've not seen anything but fairly favorable. We are seeing some things in the news that it's a go, um, and then that would be it. And also just uh, so people understand what's got this, and then there's another one in France in, in um, the fall, which he hasn't done, but those are the events that are really focused on, um, like Austria was this weekend, doing well, uh, it built it around um, the decathlon and heptathlon. And um, to get a really good score at the Olympics is near impossible because you've got so much else going on. And you've got TV breaks and things. And, and I, I remember him talking about the, his first Olympics in London is that he warmed up for the 100 and they sat for 45 minutes while other stuff went on, then went back out there and just went like without warm up. So um, he, he's, you know, it'd be amazing if he could score well like this in um, Tokyo, but. Uh, we're, we're confident in Oakville it will be a go and that he is now you know, the gold medal favorite. And the last point I'll make on that, too, is this is very much an individual event, and it's you're competing against yourself with your team around you. Um, but, you know, some people say, well, there's no Americans there this weekend. And it's like, well, that wouldn't matter at all. It's, it's how good you are in each individual event. And um, he's, uh, I know within the track world, I sort of went up like after you know, almost two years of no competition and training indoors. That's what he scored. That's that's huge. Well, that it is, Jeff. Thank you for the behind the scenes on all of this. We really appreciate it, and congratulate Damian when you speak with him next. I'll be. Seeing, he has to quarantine for two weeks. Unbelievable, and they should be back tonight or tomorrow. I'll bet he'll be sitting in his condo. <laughs> all right. Well, we're here okay. if he if he gets okay. bored and wants to chat. That's for sure. Uh, I'm sure he will. Okay. We'll look forward to it. Thanks, Jeff. That's Jeff Fisher from Fisher & Associates. They represent Damian Warner. Some behind-the-scenes on this past weekend that saw him nearly become the fourth decathlete to crack 9,000 points, but set a first-day points record, set a record in the hurdles, set a record in the long jump, and is now gearing up for the Olympic Games as long as they take place in Tokyo. And they're, they're still question but they appear to be moving forward and at the same time it's it's one of those balancing acts you have the good side of hey we have the olympic games you have the difficult side of yeah but then tokyo has to look after everything and right now they're not in a very good position when it comes to fighting covid 19 so let's go back it's 2004 It's the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Toronto Maple Leafs have a really, really good team on the ice. Their team has names like Joe Neuendike on it and Matt Sundin and Gary Roberts and Owen Nolan and Darcy Tucker. And defensively, they have Brian Leach 
and Aki Berg. Remember Aki Berg? And Brian McCabe. And our next guest, Ken Klee. That team was able to go into a first-round series against the Ottawa Senators, Battle of Ontario. And in that series, Ottawa won the first game. The Leafs won the next two by similar 2 nothing scores. And then Ottawa tied the series 2-2 with a 4-1 win on home ice. The Leafs won again 2 nothing. So their first three wins were all 2 nothing. Ed Belfour in net for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And then Game 6 goes to double overtime. If the Leafs win it, they move on in the playoffs. And it was something that they were doing with a, a little bit more regularity at that time. But instead, didn't happen that way. And the Ottawa Senators scored in overtime. Mike Fisher got the goal less than two minutes into double overtime and created a Game 7. And that Game 7 saw the Toronto Maple Leafs come home on, at that time, April 20th in the first round, and win and advance. That's what they are looking to do tonight against the Montreal Canadiens team that won game six, also won game five. And we'll see whether or not they can do it. But let's rewind time. Let's go back to 2004 because we are lucky enough to have with us right now one of the members of that Maple Leafs team to talk about that day in Maple Leafs history. Ken Clee joins us. Ken, how are things? Things are going great. Thank you. We're uh, we're doing well. Things are finally starting to uh, open up a little bit. So we're, we're trying to get back to a little bit of normal life. Um, I'm back coaching a U16 AAA team and uh, having a blast doing it. So stars of the future coming through. What is it like to, because you've been with the Syracuse Crunch and, and have done some coaching with, with older players, to be back with younger players. What's that like? Uh, it's great. You know, I always tell people, I, you know, for me, coaching uh, is coaching. Sometimes, you know, they're just bigger kids when you get to the, the pro level. Uh, Dan Bosma is a good friend of mine. And back when he was first coaching the Penguins, uh, I was coaching youth hockey. And he's like, Kenny, we have the same same kind of things. They're just bigger kids. And, uh, you know, but they still have their same same problems, wanting more ice time, wanting this, wanting that. And as a coach, obviously, you're just trying to manage that as best as you can and uh, and get everybody on the same page. So, so it's a lot of fun. I mean, even the women's national team I coached, uh, they were great as well. I mean, it's it, to me, it's whether it was a women's national team or kids or uh, pros, I, I really love it. All of them will get to big games. There will be a big game in some seasons. Some games end up being bigger than others. Take us through what it is like on the day of a game seven. If we went back to 2004, day of a game seven for the Maple Leafs, what do you remember? Well, I just remember, um, our, you know, our team had such a veteran presence. I think we had just a, a calmness about us. I think, uh, you know, we were a bit of an older team. Obviously, Ottawa put us on our heels winning in overtime. I think it was game six um, to, to send it to game seven. But still, I think there was just a belief in the room. You know, it's for me, that's as a player, it was maybe easier to control than now I've been in some you know, world championship, championship games. And, and uh, even we were just in a national championship game earlier in the month with our team here in Colorado. But, um, you know, it's, it's about just staying calm, staying confident. If you know, you have, uh, you know, you have the team to do it. It's, it's just belief, but, but it can be, you know, you, you just can't let doubt creep in. You hear some players who will say, don't get too high. Don't get too low. How do you keep yourself calm? How do you keep yourself 
focused when you know, hey, this has to happen now or it ends. Yeah, I just think it, it goes back to your, uh, you know, your training. Your, your training is to be, you know, be sharp with your habits every day. And, and as long as you do the little things well, you know, you, you put yourself in a position to win. And I think that's, you know, from the goaltender to the D to the forwards, you know, it just kind of it, it goes through your team. Things that you did well all season to make yourself successful. I think you just want to keep focusing on to, to stick with those things. And, and like you said, don't, you know, try not to worry about, you know, where you're at in the game. And that's the hardest part. If you get up a goal or down a goal or how much time is left to, to start being distracted by, by those exterior things. But it's just really important for, uh, you know, to stay in the moment. When you look at execution in a game seven, everybody will always say, hey, if you get a chance, it's it's got to go in. That game that you played against Ottawa, Chad Kilger scored him inside the first 10 minutes. Um, does that do something right there? Because I guess you guys got two goals almost like bang, bang, and led 3 nothing after one. Does that make make it easier to, to continue on in the game or then all of a sudden is it okay, we got to play ahead and, and they could catch up. Where does your mindset go there? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, you nailed it. Like if you can, obviously if you can get the lead in, in those type of games, it's, it's much better to be in the lead than to be looking at the clock uh, saying how much time do we have left to try to come back? I mean, it's uh, you know, I just remember Joe Newendike, you know, had, I don't know. I feel like he had six goals that game, but he just seemed to everything he was shooting went in. Obviously Chad Kilger had a big goal. Um, you know, it's just, it's one of those things that you can get, you know, get the lead. When you look at the numbers, I think they were short them the other night from the, the Vegas game, you know, the team that when the home team scored first, you know, the, the numbers and, and on, you know, it's a 75% or it was, you know, it was a high number. So obviously it's, uh, you know, that shows if you can score first, it's important, but I wouldn't also, you know, get away from doing the things you got to do to make yourself successful. If they score first, it's not the end of the world, but it's just, uh, you know, it certainly it does give you a lift. We're talking with Ken Klee, now coaching in Colorado, member of the Toronto Maple Leafs team that last won a game seven in the playoffs in 2004, beating Ottawa 4-1 in that game to advance. You mentioned the veteran presence. Was that something that, that you felt on the bench at all? Did the bench feel different that game in any way? Yeah, no, I just, I just remember, you know, before the game, you know, just having the, you know, Matt Sundin and Joe Newendike, Gary Roberts. I mean, the list of, of, you know, unbelievable Hall of Fame type players in my mind, you know, just went on and on in that game. I mean, of, of players we had, you know, we picked up Brian Leach, we picked up Ron Francis, we had Owen Nolan, we had, you know, Darcy Tucker, Brian McCabe. I mean, we just, we had so many guys that, especially the guys who had been there a little bit and kind of been through series with Ottawa, they were, you know, they were just kind of calm, like, Hey, you know, we've, we just find a way to, to beat them in the end. And, and that's the thing. So I think that's, you know, that was a big part of that day. It just, you know, all the, all the belief that we had in, in the room with the veterans, just knowing that, you know, at the end of the day, we were going to come out on top. Ken, no matter who wins tonight, there will be a quick start to the next series. How do you make the transition from, okay, we got that done to uh, here's what's next. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, as a pro, you know, as an NHL or they play, you know, three games and four nights all the time. Um, you know, it's kind of, it's tough cause it's a playoff series, but still, you know, I think, you know, guys get conditioned to that, to that sort of thing. It's a little, obviously there'll be a sigh of relief for whichever team comes out on top, but, but then again, you know, a day and a half later, they're going to be, okay, we're, we're back to business. We got a, you know, now there's a new challenge. So, 
you know, I think that's just part about being a pro and just, uh, you know, being out guys who play for a long time. There's a reason, you know, they, they go about their business a certain way and they do a great job with it. As far as, as the entire experience of being able to be an NHL player, compete in a game seven, do you think back on it much? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's fun. I, you know, I think back on it when now I'm coaching games and uh, you know, we had a zero zero world championship game with Canada, us, you know, that I was coaching and, you know, I tried to, you know, again, it's tough, it's tougher as a coach behind the bench, I think sometimes, cause you know, you want to help so much, but, but yeah, no, as a player, it, it was awesome. I mean, it was so fun. I, I was on both sides. We got beat in game seven in Pittsburgh when I was with the Capitals. And then obviously we won game seven, uh, you know, with the Leafs, you know, beating Ottawa. So, you know, I've been on both sides, you know, it's uh, it, like you said, it's just a, it's an experience. It's, Hey, it's, this is it. Everything's on the line. Now we're going, it's, you know, it's what you play for. It's when you're a little kid shooting, you know, whether you're shooting in your yard or shooting basketballs or, or shooting pucks, you know, you're trying to make the last shot at, at the buzzer to win. So, you know, it's just an exciting thing. Ken, we'll see what happens tonight. Thanks so much for sharing the memories of 2004 and best of luck with everything you're doing right now. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Former Toronto Maple Leafs defenseman Ken Klee. We'll see if the Leafs can grab some of that veteran-laden magic from 2004. There isn't a Joe Neuendijk or a Gary Roberts on this team, but there is a Joe Thornton and a Jason Spezza on this team. There will not be a Jake Muzzin tonight. That's a big point for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And then it just comes down to exactly what Dale Hunter will always say about a Game 7. Who executes? When you get a chance, did you score? If you did, good chance you won. If you didn't, good chance you didn't. Simple as that, but you can't boil it down any lower. Roughly seven years ago, something was started. I've got your back, 911. And you might now see the hashtag, I've got your back, 911. Maybe you've seen it on a poster. Maybe you've seen it on some kind of social media. Maybe you've seen it on a sweatshirt. And the reason it was created is to draw attention to and raise support for something that, at that point, was very silent. The post-traumatic stress disorder that was being dealt with by a number of women and men who are first responders and the tragedy in life that sometimes came about because of that. Well, we're lucky enough to have with us one of the individuals who started I've Got Your Back 911 to talk about what's happened in the last seven years and look at some of the things that have come out of an idea and a willingness to say, hey, something has got to be done. Sean Taylor joins us. Sean, busy probably doesn't begin to describe your life. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. You know, we have a new world right now, as as you know, probably, you know, being a paramedic in the middle of a pandemic, plus, you know, with I've Got Your Back, we're just as busy as we ever have been um, outside of our uh, retail store being closed right now. But our online store is absolutely insane. Well, can we take, even before we get to I've Got Your Back 911 and everything that is happening there and service dogs and milestones and all of that, 
being a paramedic during a pandemic, can you paint a picture for us how it's different from before a pandemic began? Well, I think the biggest thing, Mike, is uh, th there's a bunch of different facets to it and how it's different. Obviously, um, you know, having to gown up respirator uh, whenever we don't know or we can't, you know, specifically figure out if somebody is negative or positive for COVID. Um, there's that fear there of always being exposed and possibly bringing it home to your family members uh, of your immediate family. Uh, the other portion that's probably not that evident in, in people's minds is when we arrive to a scene sometimes and say somebody is, uh, has passed away, they've died. And it's very tense. The family members obviously don't think that we're ever uh, moving quick enough for them because their loved one has just died or they've just found them. But to now show up and have to wait probably four to six minutes while we gown up, respirator, the whole nine yards, the public perception of us not taking it serious and being quick enough is ever heightened for us right now. Well, thanks for bringing that up because obviously there's a reason why you're doing all the things that you are doing. Correct. And that in itself needs to, I guess, needs to be known, but yeah, it's, that's got to be a difficult situation. Well, you know what, Mike, in the previous nine years of me being a paramedic, um, you know, you, ha you have some situations where, you know, people will take a swing at you or, or get physical with you if, you know, they're intoxicated or they're, you know, on drugs or whatever the situation may be. But um, in the last year and a half since we've been in this, I've had three times now where people have actually put their hands on me on scene because probably of those situations where they don't think that we're moving quick enough, we're not doing enough. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange world for us right now. Paramedic Sean Taylor joining us. Let's talk about I've Got Your Back 911. People will see shirts, sweatshirts. They are all over the place. They really are. But let's go back to why this began seven years ago, Sean, and, and what brought you to saying we've got to do something well there was a period there uh of about 18 months where we had approximately 132 first responders die of suicide in canada and myself and my work partner jill foster we just figured that we needed to put something online we didn't have any idea where it was going to go or what it was going to do but allow people to have a voice and start a conversation because even at that time, only a short seven, eight years ago, it, it just wasn't commonplace to be able to have that conversation in your workplace as a first responder. So we launched, you know, I've Got Your Back 911 on different social media platforms. And within about three days, we had over 600 messages basically stating who's doing this. And this is absolutely amazing. And now here we are shipping worldwide. We ship anywhere between you know, 1,500 to 2,000 packages a month. And um, yeah, we're happy to say that during a pandemic, we were able to even donate over $100,000 during a pandemic. So it's 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 pretty humbling experience, Mike. So take us through how $100,000 comes to be during a pandemic. Where is that from? Uh, that's just from the sale of all of our merchandise that we have at our retail store, 
whenever we've been allowed to have it open, as well as our online store, uh, which you can get to right through our website. And the sale of all of those pieces, that money goes back into our charitable fund where then we turn around and we donate that back out to different organizations and charities that help first responders in their mental health. So when this first started, when there was such a shortage, everybody was really freaking out in regards to the shortage of PPE. Uh, Jill and I were able to purchase $25,000 worth of PPE, and we literally just gave it away to different hospitals, uh, different other organizations like, you know, uh, group homes, like, um, you know, kitchens for people that are less fortunate to get a meal, uh, different long-term care facilities. We just basically gave away $25,000 worth of PPE. It's remarkable. And with you and Jill starting this, how have you dealt with the fact that it has grown so big that you are shipping worldwide? You do have all kinds of money that, that can now be put to use in so many different ways. How, how do you deal with that and do your jobs at the same time? Well, we're pretty lucky, Mike, in the fact that we have two great managers that help us in both of our retail store and our online uh, capacity. And they handle a lot of that day-to-day -day stuff for us. And uh, while, B, while Jill and I are both at work, uh, working on the ambulance, but it's tough sometimes. It doesn't seem like that light switch ever gets shut off for us. Uh, we get done doing a shift at work, which is 12 hours. We're usually answering messages, answering emails, taking care of uh, talking to different suppliers in regards to different products that we want to bring in, that we want to launch. Uh, we're doing all that in between calls while we're at base, sometimes while we're in the ambulance. And then when we get home, you know, try to look after some of the most, you know, time pressing stuff as well. But um, it's a bit of a juggling act sometimes. Sometimes it feels like it's a pretty daunting task for us. Sean Taylor joining us. Paramedic and co-founder of I've Got Your Back 911. One of the things you've done in seven years, John, is not just be able to raise money, not just draw attention to something that didn't have attention to it, not just go worldwide. You've been able to form partnerships with other organizations. Can you talk about that and what that has meant? Well, I think, you know, being very picky with the relationships that we have with different organizations, but it's opened up so many other facets of where we can donate money to and the good that the money can do for us. So for instance, you know, we have uh, our service dog program that we run and we have um, a, uh, a trainer that looks after all the training of the, the puppies that we purchase. She now has a relationship with a great breeder that we get all our dogs from. Um, so we're able to take those applications from first responders, vet those applications. She does all of that stuff for us and then we're able to give those dogs to these first responders and it's absolutely life-changing when they get them. Uh, other relationships like uh, Wounded Warriors Canada, uh, we're able to help them. We're pretty instrumental in their uh, Nova Scotia program that they did for all of the first responders that responded to that tragedy last year out in Nova Scotia. And uh, we, we did a special hoodie and a campaign for them and we literally sold a thousand hoodies in three and a half minutes online we were able to turn around and uh, donate $35,000 to Wounded Warriors Canada. They've now since come up with another program, it's called Surviving Spouses, which I don't think there's a lot of this out there, to be honest with you. And uh, 
Uh, we've done some other campaigns to raise money for them and allow them to run this program where they actually have surviving spouses from first responders that have either died in the line of action or uh, by their own hands. And it allows them that closure and to actually bond with other people that are in the same situation as them, as well as get that professional help and, and start to build those resources that they can start to move on and, and get past this tragedy. So, you know, that's just to name a couple right there. Uh, boots on the ground. Uh, we're very instrumental in paying a lot of their bills and it's a peer to peer support line. And I think what's really amazing about this peer support line is the fact that they're all volunteers that are either retired or current paramedics, police officers, firefighters, corrections officers, and dispatchers that are answering those phones for people that are in crisis. And I think the most amazing part of that, Mike, is the fact that you don't need to spend the first hour of your phone call trying to explain to a professional what you do in your job and how it impacts you. These are already like-minded individuals that know your job inside and out for the most part. And the success from that is, again, absolutely profound. That's tremendous. We're talking with Sean Taylor, paramedic. I've got your back, 911 co-founder. What do you hear from coworkers, from people who are, you know, first responders about what now exists for them that just a few short years ago didn't? Well, I think one of the main things, Mike, and, and don't get me wrong, we've come a long way in seven years since we've started this, and we have seen a lot of changes, but by no means are we where we need to be. There's so much more work to do, and there's so much more emphasis that needs to be put on these different services to help their first responders. But um, when you look at just legislation alone, uh, we were very instrumental in lobbying uh, the provincial government at that time, the Liberals, as well as a lot of other facets and a lot of other organizations. But we basically got legislation in called the First Responders Act that was provincial when it first came in. And it allows somebody to get that, those resources that they need. So previous to that, you literally had to prove what call you were on that gave you PTSD, that gave you that diagnosis of PTSD. Now it's not that way. It's presumptive legislation, which just because I'm a first, resp first responder, I'm a paramedic, and I get a diagnosis of PTSD, it's automatically assumed that I got it from my job. So that came out provincially, and then within a short time after that, it was then adopted nationally. So we have seen a lot of strides that way. We have seen a lot of people being able to get the help that they need, but there's still a lot of cracks out there and there's still a lot of services that don't like to acknowledge that this stuff has a, uh, an accumulative effect on these first responders that see and do what they do every day. As we close out, Sean, you're about to find homes for a couple of new service dogs, almost hitting a milestone. How many will now have, have been put in homes? Well, this will be 20 and 21. Um, over seven years that we've done. So, um, yeah, we should be getting those puppies fairly soon. I think we have the applicants already picked that are going to be getting the pups. And then we will meet with them and, uh, and we will present the puppy to them. They get all the outline from all the training uh, restrictions as far as, you know, the contract that they sign to get all this stuff going. And, and because they have to have something invested in this as well. So they have obligations that they need to meet 
They have monthly meetings uh, in person with our trainer as well as all the Zoom meetings. And But when you see, for instance, one of our last gentlemen who's a firefighter, a uh, gentleman never left his home for years uh, previous to getting his dog. And now he's out at the grocery store with his uh, dog and uh, he's able to run errands. He's like he's gaining his life back again, even though he may not be a first responder anymore actively on the road. He's always a first responder, but he's actually gaining that freedom back of being able to have a life again. Well, Sean, thank you for what you do. Uh, life is busy, I know, but uh, it wouldn't be the same for some people without what you and everybody else working with you are doing. So appreciate that. Keep safe and keep up the great work. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. That's Sean Taylor. Sean is with I've Got Your Back 911, one of the co-founders with Joe Foster, and they continue to do really amazing work because a lot of times you will be feeling something, and what is the human reaction? It's no different than a lot of reactions that a lot of other creatures that walk this earth get. If, if it's not feeling right, you tend to go away from things. You tend to, you know, keep yourself quiet. You're, you're not going to say, hey, this is what I'm feeling. And this has been a big movement in helping to change that. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.